Yeah, good morning, everyone. It's great to be uh, starting a new series. And uh, as Rob has said, we're looking at the kingdom of God over the next few weeks. And uh, I've got a book just to recommend to you. This is a book that our preachers have uh, um, been given to read. And it's called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. And I think we've got a picture of, of it up there. That Phil will put up for us. Um, this is a great read. It's one of the short studies in biblical theology series. It sounds a bit heavy, but it's ex- extremely readable. So if you want to get a book that will go along with this course, then I'd encourage you to get a copy of this, uh, The Kingdom of God by Patrick Schreiner. Yeah, last Sunday, Andy Johnston was with us, and he spoke about Jonah and likened it to a pantomime, the story. This week, it's the turn of poetry. Poetry sales, apparently, have gone up by about 12% in the last year. Now, be honest, how many of you like poetry? Put your hand up. Oh, that's more than I thought, actually. That's really good. Now, I'm very sorry for the rest of you because a third of the Bible is actually poetry. And that's an astounding amount, isn't it? Poetry, like music, though, can reach deep into our hearts and enables us to understand human emotions and experiences at a deeper level. The book of Psalms are poetry. And we're going to read Psalm 2 together. So if you want to get your Bible out, uh, we can read Psalm 2. This is a good place for us to start as we see uh, this is a prophetic psalm and it tells us much about the kingdom of God that is to come. It's also called one of those royal psalms, so it points us towards Jesus. This psalm was probably written about the time that David was anointed as king and would have been used at the enthronement of previous uh, successive kings to David. So this morning, we're going to look at some big picture things um, about the kingdom of God. It's going to be broad brushstrokes of God's plan for the kingdom. So let's read Psalm 2 together, and it'll come up on the screen as well for us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What I want us to try and see this morning is what this psalm meant to the original readers and singers. And we need to tease that out a bit because it's not very obvious. Uh, How this connects to Jesus and his kingdom 
and its meaning for us today. So we're going to look at what the nations say, what God says, what the king says, and what the psalmist says. So the first thing is what the nations say, and we see this in verses 1 to 3. Now, the nation of Israel wanted a king to rule and reign over them. They were fed up with the judges and wanted to be like the nations around them. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel was rebelling and rejected God as their king. It had been God's desire that they would be satisfied with him reigning over them. But God eventually gave them over to what they desired. And this is quite sobering, isn't it? Because if we push and push and push, God just lets us go with it eventually. It says this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So God gave them a king, but it wasn't in his perfect plan for them originally. Although kingdom type language is not used in the early chapters of the Bible, if you look, as it were, with kingdom eyes, it's obvious that God is king. And that he wanted to reign and give authority to men and women for them to reign and rule in life over creation. We see that in the story of Adam and Eve. Israel's first king was Saul, which, if you know the story, didn't turn out too well. And then David was chosen and anointed king to rule over Israel. But the nations around them were not too happy about this. They feared David's strength and his power. His reputation as a successful military commander and leader was well known. The story of David and Goliath was just one of many stories of how powerful David was and how powerful he became as a military person. But look at the language here in verse 1. It says, the nations are raging. They are angry. The nations are in revolt. They're setting themselves up together against God. They plot together with each other against the Lord and against his anointed, King David. If you think about that from our perspective, it seems a bit strange. It seems arrogant, doesn't it, to plot against God? Who are we to plot against God? And then in verse 3, we, we read this, Let us burst bonds and cast away cords and break into pieces that which restrains us. They're saying we don't want to live under the authority of a king. We don't want to live under the authority of King David. We want to throw off restraint. We want rulership. We want freedom. We want independence. That's what they're saying. This is a messianic psalm and is therefore prophetic and points forward to Jesus as the Lord's anointed. So fast forward to Jesus' day. Herod and Pilate, at the trial of Jesus, before his death, conspired together and with Jews and Gentiles. They too were against the Lord's anointed. The Jews were under the rule of the Roman Empire and were looking for a political saviour, if you like, a Messiah who would beat up the Romans and oust them, get them out of their country. They were looking for another powerful king, one like they'd had in the past, maybe like David even. But they rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah, the one that was sent by God the Father. 
They didn't recognize Jesus or want Jesus' kingdom. They didn't want Jesus teaching about his kingdom. Remember what was written on a piece of rough wood over the head of the cross as Jesus was crucified. This is the king of the Jews. And yet they didn't recognize him. But it's not only nations that rebel and rage and plot and set themselves up against God. It's not only the Jews and the Gentiles. Every human heart does exactly that. Because all sin, all evil is rebellion against God. We rage, the psalmist says. Why rebel against God's authority? Why desire to throw off restraint, to be answerable to no one, to do things your own way, to live without any boundaries? Anarchy is found throughout history and remains with us today. Our society wants to live in a a so-called freedom society. Everyone living and doing whatever they want to do, but that only brings chaos. All our actions have consequences. All our words have power. All we do or don't do affects someone. Rebellion and rage are not only in the nations, but are in our own hearts, if we're honest. And we're foolish if we rebel against the Lord and against Jesus, his anointed. We're foolish if we say no to living under righteous authority, righteous love, the kingdom rule. So secondly, what does the Lord say? What's his answer to the nations raging? In verse 4 we read, He who sits in heaven laughs. Here we have a picture painted for us of what heaven's response is as the nations rebel. This again is one of those poetic pictures from the Psalms. There's hundreds of them in the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a picture, isn't it? He leads me beside still waters. It's a picture. As the deer pants for streams of living water, so pants my soul for you. It's a, it's a picture of our thirst for God, isn't it? I read another one this week that made me laugh in Psalm 18. It's a description of God which makes him sound more like a dragon. It says he's... Smoke comes out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth. That's an interesting picture of God, isn't it? These are all evocative images, but they convey meaning to us. So the Lord laughs. What does this mean? Tom's going to come and help me with this. Now, Tom and I are going to have a fight. This is just pretend. He's not going to hit me, okay? So... That is a great response. It's no contest, isn't it? Who would win? (laughs) Thank you, Tom. So the Lord scoffs at them. He mocks, he laughs. He ridicules their feeble plans. He laughs because God knows his own power and his purposes. He knows the end of the story. He is not perturbed by the nations rebelling. One thing to remember is that Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of darkness are not equal forces. They're they're, they're different. Like Tom and me, we're not an equal force, I can assure you. That is why God is not disturbed and he laughs at his enemies because all other kingdoms will ultimately fail. 
Kingdoms come and go. And many of you here have seen kingdoms come and go in your lifetimes. After the laugh, though, God expresses anger. This is a righteous and a jealous anger. It's not like our human anger, which sometimes can be out of control. Because God wants the nations to come to him and acknowledge him. Don't read this bit as an angry God shaking his fist with human anger. It is a holy and righteous anger that God is expressing here. God then says these amazing words. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God had set King David, his chosen anointed one, as king in the city of Jerusalem. King David would go on to conquer surrounding nations. He would subdue the enemies of Israel, and he did that. So hold that thought and fast forward to Jesus' day. And Jerusalem is described in Matthew 5 as the city of the great king. Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the King, was set by God in that city. However, not as an, uh, on an earthly throne in a palace, but on a holy hill, the holy hill of Calvary. Jesus in that place, on that cross, took upon himself the righteous anger, wrath and fury of God for rebellious people and for sin. All the rebellion and sin of all peoples, of all the nations. Jesus on that cross took that. He subdued it and he conquered it. He conquered every sin of every human heart. This is why Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Victory over every enemy of the kingdom has begun. Amen? And that kingdom continues to grow every day. One of the pictures in the New Testament of the kingdom growing is that mustard seed, the mustard seed which is so small and yet grows into a huge, huge tree. That's a picture of the kingdom. Things seem small, but it's growing. The new kingdom of Jesus is not about military dominance like we read in the psalm. It's not about national power. It's not about defeating and killing your enemies because our battle is not against flesh and blood. The marks of the kingdom, we read them in the Beatitudes. They are knowing that we are poor in spirit. They're knowing that we hunger for righteousness and holiness. It's about being merciful, about being pure. It's about being peacemakers, turning the other cheek, dealing with our anger, not retaliating. These are marks of the kingdom rule of Jesus. And in the future... One day Christ will come again. The true king of Zion will return. Not just to a small hill in the Middle East, but he will come to bring his kingdom in all its fullness over all the nations, over all the earth. Does that get an amen? Hallelujah. So that's what God says. Thirdly, what does the king say? We read this in verses 7 to 9. Let me read those to you again. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for me, I will make the nations your heritage and the kings of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what does all this mean? We see here the Lord's promise of the conquering and giving of the nations to David to make the kingdom of David visible on the earth. That conquering would be like smashing pottery with a metal rod. It's an overwhelming victory, a victory that is certain. It's another of those pictures, as easy as pots are smashed. Maybe you've dropped a pot this week. They break incredibly easily, don't they, on hard floors. That's what David's victories would be like. So fast forward to Jesus' day. Can you see the parallel in the kingdom of Jesus here? The prophetic symbolism is astounding. In Matthew 3, Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And following this, the father's words at Jesus' baptism were, this is my beloved son. We see it all here in the psalm. You are my son and I will make the nations your heritage and possession. They're speaking of Jesus and his kingdom. It's here in Psalm 2. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come. We see the picture in the psalm here of what is taking place now. As Jesus is asking the Father for the nations, he is receiving them. As sure as metal rods will smash pottery, it will happen. Rebels are and will be crushed like fragile pots. Like Anna's word about chains today. They're just like paper chains. They're just going to break. They've got no power. Jesus has this privileged relationship with the Father. His rule will be extended. As it is in heaven, so it shall be on earth. It is in line with the Father's plan. And there will be a people from every tribe and nation on the earth willingly bowing the knee to the kingship of Jesus. I long for that day. Listen to what Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 23 of Jeremiah. The days are coming, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch. It's another way of saying in the family line of David. And he, that is Jesus, shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. We see the greater fulfillment of what David won there in Jesus. This psalm started with the nations raging and rebelling against the Lord. And what is in the future? God is making a kingdom for himself. And what God does is he reverses everything. We see it in this psalm. He changes raging and rebelling people into righteous ones. He turns ungodly powers and persecution into peace. He turns ungodly judgment into joy. Because the kingdom of God is all about righteousness, peace, and joy. We read that in Romans 14. Where we've come from and where we're going is important. Who watches who do you think you are? Yeah, I think they over-egg the emotion a bit, but it's an interesting, isn't it? Well, Jewish people were very much into family trees. They were into genealogies. They were important to them. 
That's why there's chapters and chapters in the Bible of genealogies. If you're reading at the beginning of 1 Chronicles, it's, it's a lot of genealogies there, a lot of begatting. But you know, in our isolationist society, we tend to think of family not further back than grandparents or great-grandparents. But in Bible times and to God, generations are important. The seed of Abraham passed through the generations all the way to Jesus. Beginning of Matthew's gospel, we have those generations listed from Adam to Jesus Christ. God promised to Abraham in Genesis to make him a great nation, blessed by God so that they would be a blessing to other nations. And hundreds of years later, with Samuel anointing David to be king, God was working his purposes out through the generational line. And then from David forward to Jesus Christ, because absolutely everything has its fulfillment in Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is the rightful heir to the promise given by God to David's throne, a kingdom that will be established forever when Jesus comes again. The nations, you see, have no real power, and God reverses everything. They'll eventually be given as a possession and a heritage to Jesus. And we read this in Revelation. The kingdom of God has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you're into serious music, that gives you a, a, a song title, doesn't it? Fourthly, what does the psalmist say? Therefore, the psalmist says, because of this, God's ultimate kingdom rule, he gives a warning to the kings of the earth. It doesn't have to happen like this. If you're wise, if you choose willing submission, if you allow God to be king, it's the best way forward. It's the only right and proper response to almighty God. And if you're here today and don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't know have a relationship with God, it's best to get that sorted. It's our right and response to almighty God. What would coming under the rulership of David have looked like for the nations in that day in this psalm he would have expected allegiance he would have expected loyalty submission obedience service in return for his protection prosperity in that nation and peace it's wise to fear the king and this is what living with Jesus as king looks like. Yes, he expects allegiance and loyalty and submission and obedience and service. But in return, we receive so much more. We receive his protection. We receive prosperity. Not financial necessarily, but we receive prosperity and kingdom peace. And then there's that lovely phrase in the psalm there. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the sun. A few days ago, I was with a small group of leaders and we were worshipping and praying. And it was one of those um, just intense and close moments with God, which I so love. The guitarist wasn't brilliant. No disrespect to him, he would admit to that. The singing wasn't that brilliant either. But it was just a moment with God. We were caught up with God. There was a faint glimpse of his holiness, his majesty, his awesomeness, his glory. 
And it was like the veil between heaven and earth was a bit thin that day, like heaven had come and touched us. It was amazing. It was a moment of fear and trembling before God. I wasn't physically trembling, but it was a moment of just realizing how huge God was and the privilege of worshiping him. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, to live out our salvation, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, daily submitting our lives to God, daily knowing he is a holy and awesome God, daily knowing the rule of God in our lives, daily obeying the king. What a privilege to obey the king, eh? What a privilege to do that. And kiss the sun. It means to come and worship, to give homage. It could mean to kiss feet. It means to adore the sun, to worship and adore Jesus like we have been this morning. Adore with kisses of affection and love. Love him first. Love him above all. Love him much. Love him like that repentant woman who wept over his feet and kissed his feet. We have that wonderful balance, don't we, in worship of fear and trembling and intimacy. Fear and trembling because he's an almighty God. And yet we are called to come close and kiss the sun. So what does the kingdom coming look like? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, as we seek the kingdom and his righteousness, we will see the kingdom come. Yes, it does mean that we'll see an increase of the miraculous, an increase of signs and wonders, of healings, of spiritual gifts. But it's much more than this because the kingdom of God, it's all about the rule of Jesus. That's what the kingdom is. It's wherever the rule of Jesus is. That is where the kingdom is. When Jesus is king, our lives, in our lives, then we carry the kingdom with us. Did you know that? You carry the kingdom inside of you. So wherever, wherever you go this week, you bring the kingdom. That is, you bring righteousness, you bring peace, and you bring joy. What a privilege that is, isn't it? So when you're in the office, the school, the factory, the hospital, the street, you bring the kingdom with you. You can affect the atmosphere. Things can change when you are around because you have the king of the universe with you and living within you. Turn to someone and say, you can change the atmosphere this week around you. Because you bring the righteous kingdom. So it means also that you turn up to work on time. You work hard. You honor your employer. This is the other side. You do your very best for him or her. You do your job well. When you see an injustice and you can change that, you can affect that, you do that. You give the beggar a sandwich. You don't fiddle the books. You don't cheat or lie. When a friend or colleague is down, you bring that word of encouragement and life. You have the power to shift and change atmospheres as you live in the peace of Christ. 
You become a joy bringer because that's a kingdom characteristic. You can bring joy to people this week. Isn't that great? Three of you agree with me. That is wonderful. Just want to finish with some comparisons. Those of you who love comparisons. I love comparisons in the Bible. And I just want to give some comparisons with David's kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. David defeated the Israel, defeated his enemies when he was king. Jesus defeated all of his enemies at the cross for all time. David established a nation. Jesus is establishing his kingdom in all the nations has been given them as an inheritance. David fought many battles to gain his kingdom. Jesus, in one act on the cross, brought in the kingdom rule. David subdued his enemies um, and brought temporary peace to the country. Jesus' kingdom brings so much more. It brings righteousness, peace, and joy. David's kingdom ruled for a season, a period in history, Jesus' kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And a quote from the book that uh, I mentioned earlier. Just finish with this. The kingdom of God has been established through the cross of Christ by which Jesus' reign is irreversibly fixed on earth as it is in heaven. I'll give you that again. The kingdom of God has been established through the cross of Christ by which Jesus has Jesus reign is irreversibly fixed on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the king and we are his people. Amen. The worship team would like to come back. Uh, we'll, we'll just have a pray and we'll worship. If we can uh, pray for you after the meeting, if we can serve you in any way like that, um, if you need healing, if you need some breakthrough, uh, there'll be people here to my right who can pray for you. Let's, uh, let's stand and pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your kingdom is coming. We thank you that, your, that through the cross of Christ, you started your kingdom presence here on earth in, in huge ways. Thank you that we are indeed part of your kingdom. We love your kingdom rule. We love that your kingdom is about righteousness. It's about peace and it's about joy. And Lord, we just want to pray that we would move in more of those things every day of our lives, that we will be conscious of the righteousness that Christ has won for us that makes us righteous, but also that we live righteous lives before you and mankind. And we thank you for the peace of the kingdom. And Lord, we want to always, every day, live and work from that peace. And thank you that you make us joy bringers. You enable us to be joy bringers because we carry your Holy Spirit. We carry the fullness of your kingdom in our hearts. Yeah, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon from Christchurch Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, visit ChristchurchHailsham.org.